Next week, we begin our new sermon series, our Advent sermon series, uh, Advent with Friends. I'm really excited about that. If you've not heard, we put up a blog post this week and announced it, that we've got uh, a series of three guest preachers coming in during the month of December, and I'm going to be out preaching at their churches, and we're doing like a progressive dinner of preachers sort of a thing, where we each preach at each other's churches. And, uh, but today, we're going to finish up John chapter 4. It's a continuation of the passage we looked at last week, this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And so we've got a good chunk of scripture to get through. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to John chapter 4, and I'm going to invite Miss Vicki to come, and she is going to do our scripture reading today. So let's turn our hearts and our attention to God's word. Good morning. So hopefully I can get through this. I thought I was only reading to 31. (laughs) It's all the way to 42. Just read the whole rest of the Gospel of John. Okay. Uh, That's pretty long. Okay, so we're starting in verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither one, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that, I've ever, that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were trying, or were, sorry, were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone bought, brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I, have, that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to, sit, to stay with, him, with them, and he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Thanks, Vicki. God, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word 
And God, I ask that you would uh, turn our hearts and our attention to you now as we look at just these, these very deep truths, many uh, important truths, a lot of truths here. God, I ask and I pray that you'd give us soft and teachable and receptive hearts. And God, for myself, I ask and I pray that you would guard my lips and help me to only teach that uh, which is in line with the truth here in your word. And, and Holy Spirit, we, we welcome your presence right now, that you would stir in our hearts and you would stir in our minds to really bring uh, these words to life, these words that you inspired to be written so long ago. And Holy Spirit, would you convict us of sin where there is passivity or where there is uh, apathy? God, would you convict us? God, where there is attention focused elsewhere, would you draw us to have our eyes and our hearts focused on Jesus? We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. And as we're kind of concluding this first section of the Gospel of John. We're going to be in, in John for a good long while, but taking a break for Advent here, and it's a fitting week to, to kind of finish on because this is a kind of a miniature climax in the story. We've seen Jesus calling disciples. We've seen Jesus speaking with John the baptizer. We've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen Jesus engaged in conversation with Nicodemus. We've seen Jesus engaged in conversation with this woman. All of these uh, conversations have basically been one-on-ones or maybe small groups. The disciples are there. But here, this kind of first peak in the story is we see a large group of people hear the message of Jesus, hear the message of forgiveness of sins, and respond And so I thought it would be fitting, briefly, to just rehearse what John has been telling us in these first few chapters of his gospel. So one of the things that we see for sure, absolutely for sure, is that Jesus was sent on mission. Go back to John 3.17 that we looked at a few weeks ago. He said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the key words there was that Jesus was sent. He was sent from heaven to earth on a mission. That's what this whole Advent season, this whole Christmas season is about, is the coming of our Lord Jesus on a mission to do what? To do what? To save us, exactly. So that the world might be saved through him. So then the question is, well, well who, who is he going to save? Who, who may be saved? And John three fifteen, just two verses earlier, told us, Whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Raise your hand if you are part of whoever. Okay, good. And it's even interesting the way that John has constructed this. In John chapter 3, who is Jesus having a midnight conversation with? Remember? Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man. He's a ruler. He's very devout, very religious, likely wealthy, an insider. In John chapter 4, who is Jesus speaking to? A woman, a Samaritan, ew, a immoral, non-devout, likely poor outsider. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. You need eternal life. What does Jesus tell the woman at the well? You need eternal life. You need to be saved. Who who may be saved? Right? Yeah. We see this even in the way that John's constructed the story. How how are we going to be saved? How is it going to happen? We saw that all the way back in John 1. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Rich, poor, male, female, moral, immoral, insider, outsider, all are saved by believing in Jesus and being transformed, being born again. I know that in our culture, the term born again is often used as a bit of an insult, is it not? A, A pejorative sort of a term. But the Bible would teach us that anyone who has believed in Jesus, anyone who has truly been saved, you are born again. So quick show of hands, how many of you are born again? That's right. Can I get a hallelujah from the church, right? If you can be born again, own it. Come on. All who have trusted in Jesus are born again. Now, here's the, the kind of the last question I want to ask then that leads us into our passage today. Why are we saved? Why are we being saved by Jesus? Why are we being born again? Whoever may be saved, but why? What's the purpose? And we start to get into that in our passage today. When in John 4, 23, Jesus said, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. If I could use one word as to the reason why we are saved, why would God save anyone? Why would God send Jesus? Why would Christmas happen? Why would Advent season happen? Why any of this? So that we might worship God. Do you know that that is the fundamental reason why humanity was made, why we were created. We were created in the image and likeness of God to give him glory, to give him honor, to display what God is like. You and I are always, we're made to just always be worshiping. How many of you know, though, because of our sin and our fallenness, we don't always worship God? What do we worship? Self, things, stuff, virtually anything. Part of what has is, is happened because of our, our sin and our fallenness is we take that worship and we turn it back around on ourselves. And so humanity doesn't worship God. And as I was thinking about this passage and I was praying about this passage, you see that this, this Jesus was sent by the Father. And then, then Jesus sent the woman into the town, and then the, the people go, and they gather others, and there's this constant sending and going and sending and going. And why? So that everybody could gather together and worship God. I was thinking about these themes. There's these big themes of worship and big themes of mission. And there's a lot of deep, deep, deep theology in this passage. And I was reminded of a line that I heard once from, from uh, pastor and author John Piper, and he sums it up, and this, this will serve as our big idea for today. It's this. Mission exists because worship does not. We were created to worship. We fell from our purpose. We don't give God honor. We don't give God glory. And so Jesus came on mission to restore us. Did you know that there will be no evangelism and mission in the new heavens and the new earth? That will cease. But you know what will not cease for all of eternity? Glorifying God, worshiping him, honoring, living our lives for his glory. And so we're going to unpack some big themes today. This idea of mission leading us to worship. If you're a note taker, you're going to see four things. You're going to see a gospel heart. You're going to see gospel content. 
You see a gospel urgency and a gospel response. These are the four things we're going to see in this passage, looking at this idea of mission leading us to worship, okay? There's the heart that's been shaped by the gospel. There's the truths, the content of the gospel. There's an urgency that the gospel demands. And then what kind of true response do we see to the gospel? If you're a note taker, loosen up. We got a lot of room to cover. But let's dive in. Let's go back to verse 19. Verse 19 says, The woman said to him, to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, if you weren't here last week, or if you maybe forgot, let me just remind you, Jesus went through this region of Samaria. He was tired. He was thirsty. He sat down at a well. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So Jesus is already uh, crossing man-made boundaries in order to bring the message of salvation. They have this conversation. They're talking about water. The conversation gets a little bit deeper and start talking about wells and, and provision. And then Jesus goes right to the depths of the heart. He goes, hey, would you, would you go call your husband? And she gives that truth that so many of you parents know where it's technically true, but not actually true. She says, well, sir, I don't, I don't have a husband. And he goes, well, yes, you're, you're telling the truth. In fact, you have had five husbands. And the man that you are shacking up with now is not even your husband. She looks at him and goes, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. How, how did you know this? How did you, how did you understand this? And she is touched in a very painful part of her heart, in a very painful part of her soul. And she's going to do what so many of us do when we encounter something difficult or painful is going to try to move the conversation off of that sore spot. N.T. Wright, an author and commentator that I like to reference frequently, puts it this way. He says, This woman has had a life composed of one emotional upheaval after another with enough husbands coming and going to keep all the gossips in the village chattering for weeks. We assume that her various marriages ended in divorce, whether legal or informal, and not with the death of the men in question. We don't know whether she was equally sinned against as sinning, we don't know what emotional traumas in her background may have made it harder for her to form lasting emotional bonds. But she knew her life was in a mess. And she knew that Jesus knew. Her reaction to this is a classic example of what every pastor and evangelist knows only too well. Put your finger on the sore spot and people will at once start talking about something else. And... The best subject for distracting attention from morality is, of course, religion. If you can't say amen, you can say ouch. I want to point out, though, that Jesus, like a surgeon, goes in with a very skillful, sharp knife, a skillful scalpel. He cuts not to harm, but to heal. And I want to remind you so much of what we saw last week of the heart of love that Jesus demonstrated for this woman that enabled him to be able to go to the deepest places of her heart. He spent time, he spent effort and energy getting to know her, getting to hear her, engaging with her. The, the manner in which he spoke, the demeanor with which he spoke, the heart of love that was present. Jesus, of all people, had a gospel heart towards this woman that enabled him to open up this line of conversation. But, but watch this. It's not just her own personal things that they talk about. They start to talk about religion and theology. 
Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she distracts from, hey, I don't want to talk about me. Let's talk about something way less confrontational like religion and politics. I saw a poll going around this week on Facebook that said, you know, with Thanksgiving being this last weekend, it said 35% of Americans don't want to talk about politics around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And I thought 65% of Americans are lying (laughs) because nobody wants to talk about politics or religion. But for the woman, this, she wants to talk about it. This for her is at least somewhat safer than those deeper things. But again, the heart of love that Jesus has demonstrated to her has built this bridge with her where she feels safe to even open up about these things. The Samaritans were kind of a, you know, they were kind of caught in no man's land. If you remember last week, they were a mixed race of people. They were comprised of some of the Israelites who were left behind during the exile. But the Assyrians, the ones who conquered them, sent all their prisoners and all their exiles back. And so the Israelites intermarried with the Assyrians and they resulted in the Samaritans. The Samaritans, though, it's not just that there was racial animosity, there was religious animosity. The Samaritans only recognized the first five books of the Bible as legitimate. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were Torah-only people. And in the Torah, it says nothing about setting up worship in Jerusalem. In fact, when Abraham first, first ever goes into the promised land and offers a sacrifice, do you know where he does it? On Mount Gerizim, right there in Samaria. When, when Joshua leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of the Sinai desert, into the promised land, he leads a big covenant renewal ceremony. Do you know where they did that? Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans say, hey, we've been worshiping on Mount Gerizim all the way since the time of Abraham. And you illegitimate Jewish people want to go and set up some temple in Jerusalem of all places. And Solomon with all of his opulence and decadence. And he didn't even worship God. You built that temple down there. We worship on Mount Gerizim because that's where they did it first. And we're old school that way. And the Jewish people say, well, God told David that his son Solomon would build him a temple and you all are stuck in your old ways. And there was religious animosity and fighting. How many of you, those those conversations about politics or religion or things, those can be just as scary as personal life conversations. You know what I'm talking about? There's so much emotion. There's so much heat there. I want you to see the absolute starting point is that Jesus His heart, his heart was the gospel. But for us to be able to enter into these kinds of conversations, we need to have a gospel-shaped heart, a heart of love, a heart of commitment to the well-being of that person. Now they're going to get into some gospel content. She brings up this theological disagreement. Jesus is going to give her a straight answer. Jesus said to her, woman, by the way, that would be like, dear woman, don't do that, okay? Don't go around, woman. When it's in chapter uh, two or three, when he calls his mother woman, like again, not appropriate. Jesus could do it. You can't. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says it's going to be a moot point soon. There's a time coming when it doesn't really matter where you're going to worship. Why? Because he already has predicted that the temple would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. He says it's about me. It doesn't really matter in just a little bit of time. But verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Ouch. He drew a line. He said, actually, you're, you're wrong. Theologically, you are wrong, is what he's saying there. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. The one who's called the Christ. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. They both mean the king, the anointed one. He's coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. He'll sort it all out. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just imagine, I mean, the the pregnant pause. Eyes as big as dinner plates. I want you to see a few things here because Jesus has built a heart of love with this woman, but he says, you know what? There are some things that you're mistaken about. And I'm going to teach you, I want to correct you, and I want to inform you so that you can really truly understand what's going on. You guys know that we, we live in a culture and in a society where more and more it seems that the only thing that is wrong to do is to tell someone else that they're wrong. You can't tell anybody that they're wrong unless you tell somebody you're wrong and then they can tell you that you're wrong. You confused? I am. We have, we have a, a, a pluralistic society a society that has a tolerance as one of its chief values, and there's many, many good things about pluralism and tolerance. But there are times where there just is wrong information, is there not? So he's got this heart of love, he's built this heart of love, and then he's going to go in with some content about the gospel. We're going to see there's some truths given. We see some truths given about God. What's God like? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. He said, I know what God is like. Who else truly knows what God is like except for the Son of God who came from heaven? He says, God is like a father. People might conceive of God as a slave master, or people might conceive of God as just a nebulous force like in Star Wars. God says, no, God, the one true God, is like a father. He's relational. He loves people like a loving father loves children. Other people conceive of God as being confined to one location or belonging to one people group. And Jesus says, no, 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 God is spirit. He can't be contained. He loves us like his children, but he is beyond us. He is above us. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is eternal. He uh, can hold all things in the palm of his hand. In order to be saved... We have to have some idea of who God is. Amen? Listen, if there was a test for salvation that included, you know, the Nicene formulation of the doctrine of the divinity of the Son of God, how many of you would uh, balk at a question that said something about, well, is there supposed to be an iota in the word homoousius or homoousius about the nature of the relationship between the eternal Father and the Son? And you'd be like, I can't be a Christian, right? You, <laughs> the point is, you do not have to have all of your theology neat and tidy and buttoned up and you know, the full Nicene expression or the Chalcedonian expression or all these sorts of things, but, but you do need to know who God is. If you come and say, oh, I want to be saved. I want to I be forgiven by God. Well, who's God? Well, I think of God as like a tree. He's just, God's in this tree. Like, no. God, that's pantheism. That is not how God has presented himself. There has to be truth about God. 
There's truth given about the plan of salvation. First of all, he says salvation is from the Jews. There's a plan of salvation because we need to be saved. It's implied in there, but there's a problem. There's a fallenness. There's a brokenness. There's a stuckness. We cannot save ourselves. We need to be rescued. Amen? And he says the the plan is familial. It's relational. He says salvation is from the Jews. Oh, I remember. I know what that's talking about. Because I read the Old Testament. I don't just only read the, the answer key, the New Testament. I read the whole Bible, and I remember that God said to Abraham that he was going to use his family to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's why the Old Testament is so important because it shows us the whole story of God working throughout human history to bring this plan to fulfillment at the exact right time. So it's a family plan of salvation. It's a relational plan of salvation. It isn't just a, a, an arbitrary checklist of things to do. It's, it's God inviting us into his family and it's going to come through a, a specific person, the Messiah, the Christ. Salvation is from the Jews, the Messiah who's called Christ. He's coming. I am here, Jesus says. The plan of salvation is Israel's Messiah, where Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Did they do it? No, they failed time and time again. So here the Messiah shows up, the one who is true Israel, to live a perfectly obedient life to the law of God. Israel never did that to offer himself as a sacrifice, to be the once and for all final sacrifice that all of the sacrifices of Israel were pointing to. And then, guess what? To rise again on the third day, proving that all of his claims are true, proving that he has power over sin and over death itself. Jesus says, this is what's the plan. He's telling truths about God. He's telling truths about salvation. He's telling truths about how we respond. The Father wants us to respond in worship. How do we worship? We worship in spirit and we worship in truth. We worship in spirit, meaning that we worship God in all of life. God cannot be contained to a church building. Amen? When Solomon built the temple, you can read this in 1 Kings, Solomon built the temple and he goes, God, are you going to live in this temple? He goes, highest heavens can't possibly contain you. How much less this little building we built? So even when Solomon built the temple, he knew that God was not contained to that one temple. Can I share something with you, church family? Um, I don't have many pet peeves. That's a lie. I have a ton of pet peeves. And I'm going to share one of them with you in, in hope that you won't use this against me. But I know you will. One of my pet peeves is when we call the room that we gather in to worship a sanctuary. Sanctuary, a holy, a holy room. It bothers me because the Bible teaches us that we are the sanctuary of God. This room is an auditorium. I'm thankful for the auditorium. I'm thankful for seats. I'm thankful for lights and heat and air conditioning and all of these things. But God is not somehow magically more present here than he is anywhere else. If we gathered in a field, if we gathered in Safeco Field, if we gathered at the top of the Columbia Tower, if we gathered in a catacomb where we gather together, the sanctuary of our almighty God is there. Amen? You are going to worship in spirit. He's not contained to one location, one people group, one tribe. He is omnipresent. And we're going to worship him in truth. We're going to worship God for who he is, not what we want him to be or how we imagine him to be. 
One of the great problems with our sinful, fallen condition is that we are constantly reimagining God in our own image instead of understanding who God is and seeking to have us conformed into his image. In fact, atheists and uh, psychologists in particular like to level this charge against people of faith. All, all you do is you just create a God in your own image. You create some, some wish God. I think Freud talked about that. You create some wish and then you worship that. You know what? That's actually a pretty fair charge. We do that, do we not? But Jesus has come to show us what God is really like so that we could really worship him in truth, not as we imagine him to be, but for a him as he truly is. Now, Jesus draws a definitive line in the sand, does he not? And he says, okay, you're just wrong about some things, and I need to set you straight. Now, there are some of you who are like, man, I have been waiting for this sermon. I've been waiting for this passage because it was getting a lot too, you know, lovey and kind and just gentle all up in here. And I've been waiting for Jesus to put the theological smackdown on somebody, okay? I want to I I ask, well, let me set this up. Some of us are prone uh, just in our natural wiring and makeup of how God made us, we're prone to be more intellectually driven, more mind-focused. We love right. We love correct. We love truth. We love theology. We love references. We love footnotes. We love study notes. Others of us are maybe more what you could call heart-driven. We love feelings. We love that Jesus was kind to the woman. We love the relational approach. We, you know, footnotes, who, who cares? We just want to enter into their world and enter into their suffering and into their pain, and we're, we're, we're just full of the heart of love. Okay, so quick identification. How many of you would say, yeah, I definitely lean more in the kind of truth intellectual side of things? Raise your hands, okay? That's good. How many of you would say, yeah, I definitely lean more on the, the heart, feelings, love side of things? Yeah, I knew you would. <laughs> okay, and I knew my wife, yeah, uh, I, I could have called this for a lot of you that I know. Here's the deal. The church throughout history has looked at those two leanings and those two inclinations and said the scripture actually points us to an embrace of both. Scott Swain, a, hist- uh, a theologian and, and author, puts it this way. He says, Historically, the church has acknowledged two servants as particularly trustworthy aids when it comes to interpreting the Bible, the rule of faith and the rule of love. These two aids are found in various expressions throughout the life of the church, from the informal summaries of the evangelists to the more formal statements of synods and general assemblies. The rule of faith is is found in places like Jude, verse 3, where he writes, I'm writing to you, urging you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Friends, our message has content. There is truth to be transmitted. Not all ideas about God are right, and not all ideas about God are helpful or spiritually healthy. Just because you found it on the pages of a book that you bought at the Christian bookstore does not automatically mean that it is true or helpful or healthy. Amen? Everything must be tested against the sound word of God that he has given to us. This is the rule of faith. In fact, some of the most harmful things you'll ever hear come from the pages of books that were bought at a Christian bookstore. Scott Swain says that uh, as spectacles help the reader follow the letters on a page, so the rule of faith helps us follow the pattern of sound teaching contained in the Holy Scripture. Now, the other one is the rule of love. 
Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, the goal of our instruction, the reason I'm writing to you, the reason I'm teaching to you, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Swain writes additionally, he says, the rule of love helps us further understand the goal of all that God does and says in the Holy Scripture. Why does God redeem, him, redeem us and reveal himself to us? Why does God give us neighbors outside the church and brothers and sisters within? What is the ultimate aim of all God commands us? That we might love him and that we might love others in, with, and for him. Any interpretation of the Bible that fails to appreciate this overarching goal is a failure of interpretation. You might be the most right person in the world, but without a heart of love, you are very wrong. And, and conversely, I would say you might be very loving, but if you're not actually providing helpful truth, the right medicine in the right doses, you're not actually loving. What's the solution? I think it's very simple. Number one, recognize that we all need to grow in both. God wants to grow us in the totality of who Jesus is just because we naturally lean one direction or the other. It's not wrong. It's not bad. But God wants to grow us in both. And we need community. (laughs) You truthers need love people. And you heart-feeling people, you need rule of faith people. We need each other so that when we are tempted to drift or when we're tempted to overemphasize something, someone else in relationship with us can pull us back together. The rule of faith and the rule of love. Isn't it beautiful to see both lived out in Jesus with this woman? He's he's telling her truth. And he's doing so in such a way that she knows that she is safe and cared for and loved. Verse 27. Just then, right in that mic drop moment, I am here. Messiah, I'm he. Just then, his disciples came back. And I just, it's probably not there. I just imagine they walk up and it's like, why are they sitting there in silence? This is awkward. What is going on? They marveled. They were surprised that he was talking with a woman. There's all sorts of gender stuff going on here, as well as racial stuff. How, how, how could a man, a rabbi, be talking with a woman? How, how could he possibly be giving a theological education talking about such deep and weighty, important subjects with a woman. (sighs) Sisters, I'm so thankful for you who study your Bibles and know the truth of God, and we are thankful for you. Amen? Can I get an amen from the brothers here? I mean, we love smart, strong, theological, won't back down, steals of spine, courage, bravery, women who will study the truths of the Word of God. Because that's what Jesus is demonstrating here. Amen? That's totally free of charge. We'll, we'll do more on that some other time. Nobody said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The disciples had a good moment. They kept their mouths shut. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, she left her jar right there. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could it be the Christ? Meanwhile, the disciples hanging back with Jesus, were saying, Rabbi, eat. You sent us into town. We got you some food. Please eat it. But he said to them, I love, I love Jesus. I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, someone brought him 
something to eat? Like, why? I thought that was the whole point when we went on the trip. What did he get food? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, don't you have a saying? Four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift your eyes. See that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. We see here that this heart of a gospel, of the gospel from Jesus and this content of the gospel from Jesus has resulted in an urgency. We have to act. We have to act now. We have to not just put this on the shelf and think about it later, but we have to do something about this. The woman knows it. Jesus knows it. Jesus is trying to urge the disciples to know it. Something must be done. And we can see that this urgency that happens here has a few parts and pieces to it. First of all, this urgency has transparency. Did you notice what the woman did? She ran into town and she said, come, see a man who has told me everything I ever did. We talked about shame last week and the the hiding and the covering that happens with shame. But now she's met Jesus and she's experienced his love and she's experienced his grace. And she says, you know what? Forget shame. I got to go tell people what I have experienced. And if that means I need to own my sin and my brokenness, he knows it. I know it. They might as well know it too because I can walk in freedom having met the Savior. How many of you have experienced that in your life where when you've deeply experienced the love and the grace of Jesus, you feel more free to share openly and honestly with people the things that you're not too proud of. This is gospel urgency. It says, you know what? I got to tell people. I got to share the gospel with people. I got to invite them to know Jesus. And I don't really care if they know how bad and messed up I am because Jesus knew all of it and he still loved me and laid his life down for me. The book of Romans tells us that while we were yet sinners, while we were in the middle of our sin, Christ died for us. The gospel frees us to live transparent lives. Some of you need to be willing to go there with your community group. Some of you need to join a community group or set up some regular rhythm of life where you can meet with people and talk about those things in your life that God is dealing with, with gospel urgent transparency. Notice the priority. The woman makes a priority. It says she left her water jar. And I love that because first of all, just on the, on the, surface level, she's just so excited to go tell people. She just leaves her water jar and runs back to town like, hey, you might want that later. But also, I think metaphorically, she's leaving her water jar. Last week, she just kept, you remember, she keeps wanting to go back to, I just want to talk more about water, and Jesus is trying to go deeper, and she just wants to talk about surface. Well, she's finally leaving it behind. Ah, I get it. I want to go deep. I want to talk about things of the heart. I want to talk about things of eternal significance. But for Jesus, there's a priority. The disciples are saying, bro, you need to eat. I don't know if they said bro, probably in Aramaic, whatever that word is, but we need you to eat. You've been sitting here, you're hot, you're thirsty, you're tired. We went and got food, please eat something. And Jesus goes, my food is to do the will of uh, the one who sent me. He says, look, there's lots of time to eat, but I've got to act right now. Don't you have this saying, four months, and then there's the harvest. Four months are over, it is time for the harvest right now. I've shared with you guys over the last few months, I've been kind of slowly working on a construction remodel project in my kitchen. I'm pleased to say that it's really close to being done. And I've been saying that for like three months. But 
there was a, a, a time recently where we, we put down some, some thin set concrete on the flooring. And did anybody here ever worked with concrete? Oh man, it's miserable stuff because this is like, and I looked at the bag and I'm like, oh, rapid dry. And so I'm like working as fast as I can. And like there's things in the construction project like, you know, I can get to that later. I can do that later. I can put a light switch in later, whatever. It's like, I'm working on the concrete. I have to finish this right now. The kid comes up like, daddy, could you color with me? I'm like, ah, I love you. No, I can't color with you right now. I have to act right now. Even as important as that is, there's a prioritization. When it comes to sharing the gospel, There is a priority. This must be done now. We all have many things in our lives that are important. Food, eating is important, is it not? But here Jesus says there's something even more important than food. It's to do the will of the one who sent me. I have to share the gospel. Friends, one of my great concerns for us as a church community is that we would allow the multitude of comforts and conveniences and priorities that we are afforded in the North Seattle suburbs to distract us from that which is of our utmost priority, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Family is important. School is important. Community involvement is important. Managing your assets and your bank account is important. Getting your car repaired or your roof repaired or having your lawn aerated. All of those things, I'm not saying they're unimportant, but what I am saying is that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be at the top of our priority list. And that is one of my deep concerns for us as a church family is we will be lulled into a apathy or a passivity or a slumber that comes just because it's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in, proverbially. Oh, I've got a lot going on in my life right now. Is anything more important than sharing the good news of Jesus with someone who's lost and far away from him? Is there anything more important than that? This urgency, it it prioritizes things. But I love this too. This urgency is joyful. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Some of you, your picture of urgency is very off-putting. Well, it's, it's very important. We need to deal with this right now. Like, whoa, Jesus said there's joy to be had. Joyful urgency. Listen, yes, urgency. Yes, Passion, yes, even intensity, but joy. Does your sense of urgency come with you guys? I found living water. I found the bread of life. I found the one who takes away the sin of the world. I found the one who takes away all of our shame. Let's have joy as we passionately and urgently share the gospel. Amen? We need joy, the the joy that Christ himself has. And then lastly, you see there's humility in this urgency. Did you notice what Jesus said? One sows, another reaps. One person plants the seeds, another one gathers the harvest. I'm sending you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. You get to enter into their labor. Okay, this will help us with our joy. Because ultimately, you, I, Billy Graham... No one can change a human heart except the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? 
It does not matter how joyful you are, how urgent you are, how loving your heart is, how clear and truthful your doctrine is, how delicious of cookies you can bake, how many times you have swept and, and you know, leaf-blowered your neighborhood or whatever. All of those things mean nothing if the Spirit of God does not enter in and turn a person from unbelief to belief. So at the end of the day, you can put your head on your pillow and sleep well knowing that your job is faithfulness. God's job is results. But what's more is you are not singularly responsible for this job of sharing the gospel. Some people sow, other people reap. We need each other. Jesus even sent his disciples out two by two. So if you are trying to share the gospel with someone, if you're trying to love them, passionately urge them, go with humility knowing that you alone by yourself probably need other people with you to help do this job that God's given to us. We need to have humility in our urgency. And I share this with you because in my life as a Christian, I have personally witnessed this firsthand with people who I love dearly, where they bought into this idea, if I just was a little bit more loving, or if I just shared the gospel a little bit more, if I just did a little bit more, that person would get saved. And they wore this heavy crushing burden upon themselves that led to years of depression because there was a misalignment of the understanding of God's sovereignty and our being invited into his work. It is not up to you to save someone else. God ultimately does the work of saving. We need each other as we go about the work of sharing the gospel. Let's approach this with a little bit of humility and don't put the heavy weight on your back. Amen? We see now this heart, this content, the urgency brings a response. And this is where we'll close. Picking back up in verse 39, he says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is a beautiful response. This is not a false response. This is a true response where we see many people wanting to follow after Jesus and there's some markers about this, this gospel response. First of all, this, this response has truth. They're responding to the truth. The, 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 the theological truths and the lines drawn in the sand, they're responding truthfully. We know that this is the savior of the world. So there must be a, a response of, of understanding that what Jesus said is true. But the response is also relational. It says that they believed because of the woman's testimony. Some of you may have met Jesus just all by yourself. I, I, I have known people that have had dreams and visions and Jesus appeared to them and that's amazing. I've known some people just kind of on a whim picked up a Bible and started reading it to maybe pick it apart and God meets them. But a quick show of hands, how many of you met Jesus because someone else in your life introduced you to Jesus? That's a significant majority of you. That this woman shared her life and her testimony and the other people came along and that God doesn't just save us as individuals and then put us on the island, but he saves us into a family. It's relational. But then it's also personal. I said this, we no longer believe just because what you said we've heard for ourselves. 
there comes a time where every follower of Jesus needs to know that they're following Jesus for themselves, not just because of the person who introduced them. That's my story a little bit. My parents raised me quite literally in the church. My parents became Christians in their mid-20s. I was very young. My dad learned how to read the Bible by reading the picture Bible to me. And people would ask me, like, when did you get saved? I'm like, I don't know, four? My deep theological understanding, yeah, I'm a sinner, I know. (laughs) I need a savior. But God spoke to my heart at a youth retreat when I was 14 years old. And about as clearly as I can remember God ever speaking to me said, I don't want you to follow me because mom and dad do. I want you to follow me for you. And if you ask me kind of what was my formative experience in the faith, I would point you to that moment. I don't remember when faith first came into my heart, but that moment for me was incredibly formative. Some of you have believed, oh yeah, maybe I can just kind of get into heaven on, you know, so-and-so's plus one ticket. Uh, It's been said God doesn't have any spiritual grandchildren, but just children. I think that is a true statement that we need to come personally to Jesus. And then I love this. Their response is abiding. They ask Jesus, would you stay with us? Would you just please stay? Don't move on. Don't leave. I just want to be with you. Some of you have had this experience where you've met Jesus or you're just like, all I ever want to do is read the Bible and all I want to do is worship him and all I want to do is be with his people and talk about Jesus and this, this idea of just abiding. I just want to spend time with Jesus. Some of you have drifted from that. Some of you need to have that desire for time with Jesus rekindled. Bring us back all the way around to what we said at the beginning. Mission exists because worship does not. And I want to ask you, as we close this time and head into a time of worship, we've been saved so that we can worship God. We've been saved so that we can worship him through singing. We can, we've been saved so we can worship him through giving. We can worship him through a celebration of the Lord's table. We can worship him in all sorts of ways. Who are those people in your life that God is stirring you to share the good news with. We're heading into the Advent Christmas season. In, in my experience, this is one of the few times of the year that people are still somewhat open and receptive to an invite to come to church, to, to talk about things of faith. Who has God placed in your life? Your, your gospel-shaped heart coming together with the content of the gospel, a sense of urgency, so that we might see a gospel response. Sound City, let me ask you, do we want to see a gospel response in our communities, in our church? Do you want to see that? Do we really want to see that? Not what's the right answer, what's the true answer? Do we really want to see that? Let's go to God in prayer. God, I ask right now that that we who are, are saved, we've been Bought by you, God, I ask and pray that we would respond now in true worship to you, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, worshiping you through singing and through giving and through celebrating the table together. God, for anyone who's here today who's not yet a follower of Jesus, who's not yet been born from above, God, I ask that you do that work in their heart to give them faith that they might join us in responding in worship now. And God, would you stir our hearts with this sense of urgency to share the gospel with any and all who need to hear it. We pray this all in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. I want to invite us to respond. We're going to respond in a few ways. First is through the giving of our tithes and offerings.
If you're a guest or a visitor, please know that we do not believe in arm twisting or begging or manipulating. We simply want to invite you, whether you're a guest or a regular attender, to join us in giving of our finances as worship to God. We'll invite our younger students class to join us here for this time of response as well. And as you're giving and as you're worshiping God in this way, uh, let me read some discussion questions, things that will help us this week in our homes and community groups for conversation and kind of wrestling through this passage. First, uh, mission exists because worship does not. How do you feel having been invited into Jesus' mission? And how does the idea of God's glory help us keep a focus on mission? Number two, we need both the rule of faith and the rule of love in our lives. Which one would you be prone to neglect and why? And how is God growing you in both? Number three, how would you rate your own sense of gospel urgency? Is there priority? Is there transparency and joy in your life when it comes to sharing the gospel? And then number four, how might God want to grow our church collectively in our gospel heart and content and urgency so that we can see more gospel response? And a couple of things to pray, pray about because we believe that trying to do this mission without prayerfully depending upon Jesus is arrogant. So we want to be prayerful people. Pray that we would be people of joyful mission, prioritizing the sharing of the good news of Jesus with the world around us, and then pray that our pursuit of mission would be focused on God's glory, not us. It's not about us. Amen, Sound City? It's not about us. And, oh, you need to come to my great church. I love our church family. It's about pointing people to Jesus. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. They'll begin passing out the elements here. I'll invite the musicians to come as well. And let's read from 1 Corinthians 11 to direct our hearts in this celebration. This is an act of worship, is it not? Jesus serving us, his body, his blood in grace, us eating, taking, receiving, being built up in his grace and and worshiping God through this action. 1 Corinthians says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So friends, we're going to hold together in a time of response and reflection. Musicians will play instrumentally for a while. You can remain seated. You can kneel. You can stand however you want to respond to God. Let him examine you. God, is there anywhere where my heart is not responding to you in worship? Is there anywhere where I need to have an urgency of going on mission? And then when the time is right, we'll all stand together and and sing corporately in, in worship in response to God. As they finish handing out the elements, let me pray and we'll enter into our time of response. God, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were sent on mission to seek and to save and to rescue and redeem lost sinners like us. And God, as we have been saved unto worshiping you, we've also been saved to join you in the mission that you've given to us. And so I pray, Lord God, now as we sing and as we worship through these songs, I pray that our hearts would be full of your goodness, of your glory. And then as we close, you'd send us out to live lives of mission to share the good news with any and all that we come into contact with. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.